unless you've been living in a cave and haven't been watching any kind of media whatsoever, you are fully aware that Russia invaded Ukraine. Since that has happened, there's been no shortage of those who are claiming this is the beginning of World War III. I just did a simple search this week and found the words World War III in the headlines of New York Post, New York Times, and MSN, Fox News, Washington Times, Jerusalem Post, Times of Israel, Business Insider, Business Today, Newsweek, ABC News, Univision, all using the phrase World War III. I found headlines that this is the beginning of World War III in countries like Israel, Nigeria, India, Ireland, the U.S., and other places. Many people are afraid that's what's going to happen. We're entering World War III. What's going to happen if the U.S. gets involved and we launch nuclear weapons and Russia launches nuclear weapons? Can we survive that? I don't think anybody survives a nuclear war, but of course we're not really familiar with that yet, so uh, not likely that that's going to happen. But if it does, by the way, side note, we're that much closer to going home. And if there's a nuclear war... You can bet we won't be meeting the Sunday after because Bremerton's high on the priority list and we'll get wiped out anyway. So, And it'll be instantaneous, so there's nothing to worry about. But people are afraid. People want security. We've lived in the land of the free for so many uh, centuries and we think that uh, this is the, fear, the safest place on the planet, at least we used to think that until 9-11 happened, we would think that, you know, nothing really happens on our shores. The closest they got were, was Pearl Harbor. And other than that, really nothing has been that significant on our own shores as far as other world powers after our fight for independence. They're in the neighborhood of 1.3 million men and women on active duty at the U, in the U.S. military. There's an additional 800 800,000 reservists and National Guardsmen bringing the total to over 2 million soldiers who are protecting our borders. Add to that approximately 700,000 sworn law enforcement officers protecting our nation's streets. Even with all that, you still feel the the need to lock your doors at night. This has nothing to do with our military's ability or our law enforcement's resolve to do a good job at just a reflection of the kind of world we live in. You can drive through many cities across America and you'll find bars on windows and doors just because it's reflective of the neighborhoods that people live in. We live in a world where people find it necessary to spend a lot of money to provide security for themselves through security systems, even personal security. You'll find this interesting or not. I read this week that Kim Kardashian spends $7 million a year on personal security. In spite of all of that, despite the multi-billions of dollars that are spent every year on security, we have deadbolts, sophisticated alarm systems, monitoring every door and window, including our own buildings here. Even still, people tend to... in States where it's allowed and where it's not allowed have a gun as a final level of security. And despite all the advancements that have been made over the last 
few thousand years in terms of protection, we've not gotten very much further than they were in the Old Testament. We still have the same types of security, maybe a little more deadly, but still the same types of security. Throughout the Old Testament, the way that cities tended to protect themselves was a wall. They put a wall around their city. They would often build their cities on height because they could see enemies coming from a distance. But the final measure of protection was a city wall. It was the most basic in terms of protection. In fact, when the the nation of Israel was released from the Babylonian captivity by Cyrus, they, after the Persians had taken over Babylon, after 70 years of captivity, when they went back to Jerusalem, their number one priority, their top two priorities were to build the temple and build the wall around the city. They needed that protection. A typical fortification wall around a city in that day and age was dug deep until they hit bedrock. They hit stone, and that's where they would begin to build the wall. Walls were typically 35 to 40 feet high, and they were as wide as 25 feet. Wide enough for an entire army to march around the top, wide enough to build a house on top of the city walls. That's where Rahab lived when on top of the wall of Jericho. Walls were usually too wide, too thick, too tall to breach. So armies would often spend a significant amount of time invading armies to build a siege ramp. They would build a ramp to get up the wall. They would just keep piling dirt and compacting it until they had a ramp large enough to to wheel uh, catapults up it or march their army up and over the wall. And if that was not practical, they would just build another wall around the city And then they would capture anybody trying to escape the city and they would prevent anybody from coming in to the city. This is why when Jerusalem was under siege, they dug a tunnel out from underneath their city to a water source so they could get water inside the city. Otherwise, they would have just starved to death because they couldn't grow food. In a much greater way than these massive walls protected, God is the protection for those who belong to him. And that's what Psalm 91 is about. Psalm 91 is a beautiful picture of God's protection upon his children, upon those who fellowship with him specifically. Psalm 91 is the antithesis of Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is about God's wrath, and it's about man's frailty. Just to give you an idea, in Psalm 90, look at verse 7. 7 through 9 says, the psalmist writes, "...for we have been consumed by your anger." And by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury, and we have finished our years like a sigh. Not a very uplifting passage right there. But Psalm 91 is the antithesis. Verses 1 and 2, which we'll look at this morning, says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. These two verses really form the theme of the entire psalm. This security is found in God. The poetic style makes it easy to memorize and and recall the wonderful promises of security in times of need, in times of distress and fear. It's often been used for that purpose in times of difficulty to bring comfort and 
in life-threatening situations to show that God is our protection. Martin Luther said of this psalm, it is the most distinguished jewel among the psalms of consolation. Charles Spurgeon said of Psalm 91, quote, in the whole collection, there is not a more cheering psalm. Its tone is elevated and sustained throughout. Faith is at its best and speaks nobly, end quote. We could easily divide the entire psalm into three sections. We're only going to look at the first section this morning, the source of our security. Verses 3 through 13 could be the scope of our security. And verses 14 through 16, the sovereign affirmation of our security. But we're going to look at the source of our security this morning. And the genuine source will come as no surprise to the Christian is it's God. That's the genuine source of our security. The psalmist wants the reader to fully recognize that and remember that because it's easy for us to forget. It's easy for us when we see the threats coming to think that our security is found in something other than God, that our security is found in a deadbolt or our security is found in a loaded gun or our security is found in our own wisdom. But the psalmist wants us to know that's ultimately not the case. Whether our physical bodies in danger or not, our ultimate security is found in God. And it's with those who dwell with God. Verse 1, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Throughout, in these two verses, the psalmist gives four words for security and four titles for God. Each verse has two of each. Two words for security, two words or two titles for God. Each of them uh, shows us the, the power of God, shows us the authority that God has to provide this protection for us. And this, these show us the necessity of close fellowship with God. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. To dwell, or your version may say, the one dwelling. The unspoken implication is not everyone dwells with the Lord. Despite what some people claim, not everyone who lives in this world dwells with God, and not even every believer literally dwells with God. We may belong to God as believers, but the word dwelling here is is this idea of being at home with, as of being in His presence in a regular in a regular sense, in a constant sense. And not everyone enjoys that. Not everyone does that. Not everyone chooses to be in the presence of God. They wander away, if you will, from the presence of God. They can't walk away from their salvation, but they can walk away from their that fellowship with God. Not everyone enjoys the provision and protection of God. We forfeit, if we're not careful, the privilege of dwelling in His shelter. So the promise of protection is for those who dwell with Him, those who, by their closeness to God, reap the benefits of His presence. Some have refused to humble themselves and come to saving faith and therefore forfeit the presence of God, forfeit that protection of God, put themselves in great peril. They put themselves at the the mercy or the lack of mercy of the hand of Satan. Even some believers have withdrawn themselves from the Lord for a time, not in the way of losing your salvation, but a way of losing that fellowship and put themselves, make themselves vulnerable to the roaring lion 
who's seeking to devour. You might remember that just before the crucifixion, Peter had told Christ, I will never deny you. And he said, you're going to deny me three times. And just prior to that, he said, Satan desires to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But he said, don't worry, I prayed for you. So this idea of of a believer being attacked, being outside of the protecting hand of God is very real. And this protection, this shelter of God doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen. We know that historically because we see believers being martyred for their faith. Faithful men, faithful women being killed. But others have claimed to follow Christ and have walked away and forfeited that blessing. We think of the couple Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit and as a result were out from under the protection of God and died. There's the the man in 1 Corinthians 5 who Paul turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his soul might be saved, implying that this is a believer who is going to suffer at the hands of Satan because of the sin in his life. Or Hymenaeus and Alexander, who Paul said have shipwrecked their faith, making them vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. So many are outside the protection of God, and that would be obviously a bad place to be. None of us want to be outside of any kind of protection. Nobody here, probably nobody, would intentionally go spend the night in Pioneer Square or South Central Los Angeles or Chicago or Many other places in the world, you wouldn't just go sleep outside because of the lack of protection for the, and the concern of what that would happen to you if you did that. Yet, there are many in greater danger because they're not living in the shelter of God. Charles Spurgeon said this about this verse. He said, the blessings here promised are not for all believers, but for those who live in close fellowship with God. Every child of God looks forward to the inner sanctuary and the mercy seat, yet all do not dwell in the most holy place. They run to it at times and enjoy occasional approaches, but they do not habitually reside in the mysterious presence. It's not only a privilege, but a necessity for the believer to dwell in the shelter of the Most High. It's something that we intentionally do. It's not something that just guaranteed, that just happens because you said a sinner's prayer. To dwell means to settle in, to be at home. It's more than visiting. It's more than having an acquaintance. It's close fellowship. It's being at home with God. You no doubt have gone to somebody's house and they said to you, make yourself at home. And typically you don't. You don't really make yourself at home. Because if you make yourself at home, you would have kicked off your shoes, you'd have gone in the kitchen, you got a snack, you would have grabbed the remote, sprawled out on the couch, and watched a ball game. You would make yourself at home. Usually when somebody says, make yourself at home, you say, thank you, and you just try not to break anything. Because <laughs> it's not really your home. You're not really that comfortable. To dwell in the shelter of the Most High is to be at home. It's to be comfortable. It's to relax because you are at home. This is where you belong. This is where you're comfortable at. This is your familiar surrounding. 
This is the presence of God and you're not a visitor there. You're not just popping in every once in a while like at your grandparents' house. You live there. This is a place where God knows all about you. And you have regular fellowship with Him. You talk with Him every morning when you get up. You talk with Him every night before you go to bed. Because you're in the same place. You're dwelling with Him. You're at home with Him. You're comfortable with Him. He knows all about you. You know He knows all about you. And that's okay. You can have peace of mind because the place that you're dwelling is completely secure. There's no worries. In this phrase, the psalmist used the first of the four words for protection, the first of the four titles for God. There's the shelter. He who dwells in the shelter. This is literally, the word means hiding place. You're dwelling in the hiding place of God. It has the idea of secrecy. It's secure partly because it's secret. The enemy can't penetrate it. The enemy can't breach it because the enemy can't even find it. The enemy can't get to where you are. If you're dwelling in the presence of God, the enemy can't get there. It's a secret spot. When the Lord returns and at the end of the, in the midway through the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to turn his anger and wrath toward the nation of Israel that are left and they're going to flee and they're going to go to a secret spot where God is going to protect them and provide for them. And no matter how bad Antichrist wants to destroy them, he can't. He can't get to where they're at. God won't allow it. And that's what the idea is here. It's this secrecy spot, a secure place that the enemy can't get to. No matter what they do, no matter how hard they try. It's like a top secret bunker hidden in a granite mountain somewhere. Nobody even knows where it's at. No satellite can find it. No bomb can penetrate it. It's totally secure. So we can be relaxed. We can be at home. We can feel secure. The top secret place belongs to the Most High. The Hebrew name there is Elyon. You might have heard that term before. Elyon means Most High. It points to the exalted nature of God. There's none higher than Him. It's a superlative. He is the most high. There's no one higher than Him. There's no one with greater authority than Him. No president, no king, no dictator, no emperor has had or will ever have more power and authority than God. Therefore, the secret place that belongs to Him is more secure than anything that's belonged to anybody else. The most high is the possessor of heaven and earth. Since there's no one with greater power, no one with greater authority, there's no place more secure. And that second line of that first stanza, he will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. To abide, your version may say rest, literally means to pass the night. To pass the night. The grammar speaks of continuous repeated action. So constantly spending the night in the presence of God. To dwell in God's shelter and to abide in His shadow is not visiting, it's moving in. It's showing up with your 
you were with your pod full of stuff and moving in. In other words, the psalmist is not saying here, he who visits God's bed and breakfast is secure. It's the one who moves in. The one who lives there. To dwell in the shadow is to abide with God. It's not like visiting a day spa, someplace you go to get recharged. It's home. It's where you live. It's where we are to dwell constantly. It's not just some place we come to on Sundays. It's some place that we go to all the time. It's where we live. David wrote in Psalm 23, 6, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Sometimes that feels like my life verse. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The shadow of the Almighty, the second word for protection, and the second title for God, shadow here has the figure of uh, of protection. To be in His shadow must mean that we're close by. We're near God. We're close enough to be in His shadow. The psalmist expands on this in verse 4. If you look down at verse 4, he says, He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. And the, the picture is that of a, of a hen covering her chicks with her wings. Jesus would use the same metaphor in, in Matthew 23, verse 37. Just before going to the cross, he's overlooking Jerusalem and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Jesus is talking about wanting to protect the the Jews in Israel and particularly in the area of Jerusalem and provide security for them and, and protection for them. Because he knew because of their rejection that God would send in the Roman army in 70 AD and destroy the city and kill thousands of people. The shadow of the Almighty. The Almighty is Shaddai. Shaddai, the all-powerful one. You've probably heard the song that made famous by Amy Grant, El Shaddai, El Shaddai, El Elyon, Adonai. And that means... God Almighty, God Almighty, God Most High, O Lord. This exalted titles of God. He is the most powerful. He is the most high. There's no one more powerful than Him. There's no one higher than Him. So how does one come to dwell in the shadow of the Almighty? How do we get there? How do we do that? King David asked the same question in Psalm 15, verse 1. He said, O Lord, who may dwell in your tent? And who may dwell on your holy hill? Well, the answer comes through a number of areas, but primarily obedience to God. Jesus put it like this. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Well, one of the commandments is to believe in him. You need to believe in Christ. You need to be saved. For us to to dwell in the presence of God is to know Christ. If you don't know Christ, you can't dwell in the presence of God no matter what you do. You can't get there. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2.24, If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And what they heard from the beginning was to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love their neighbor as themselves. 
And if you do that, then you're abiding. And to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength is to know Christ. If you don't know Christ, then you don't really love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Psalm 61, verses 1 through 4 says, Hear my cry, O God, give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. So there is this idea of calling out to the Lord without need, that desire to live in the presence of God. God, I want to dwell with you. I want to be in your presence. For us, after Christ, the way to the presence of God is only through Him. John fourteen six, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So if you're going to get to the shelter of God, it's got, it has to be through Christ. It can't be through your own understanding. It can't be through your own study. It has to be through Christ. If it's not through Christ, you can't get there. It's a top secret spot that only God knows about. No one else can find, no matter what they try. And the only way to get there is through Jesus Christ. John ten nine, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. We need to go through Christ. There's no other door. There are many people who claim to have the way, but the Bible is clear that it's only through Jesus Christ. And the good news is once we enter there and we're dwelling in the presence of God, nothing can hurt us. Nothing can hurt us in terms of taking away our salvation. This is Romans chapter 8. Neither height nor depth nor principalities or powers or things present or things to come can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Such knowledge is cause for praise. The security that the psalmist is writing about in verse 1 overflows in his own attitude in verse 2. And he speaks of the security personally. Verse 3, you'll notice it's in the third person. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Verse 2 is in the first person. He He's responding. This is his own heart coming out. He says in verse 2, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He's going to go back to second person in verses 3 through 13. So he starts in third person, then goes to first person to reflect his own heart, and then back to second person. The sense is the author is so excited that he breaks from giving instruction to reveal his own enthusiasm of dwelling with God. He can't contain his excitement anymore. I will say to the Lord, just dwelling in the, in the presence of Christ, in the presence of God's shelter, so continuously causes the psalmist to say, I will keep on saying to my Lord, you are my refuge and my fortress. It's almost as if the author is struck by the marvelous nature of what he's actually writing. As he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write about God's shelter and what it is to dwell there, he is struck by it and he can't help but overflow in his own Verse of praise. He is my God. He's my refuge. He's my protector. He's the one in whom I trust. He's the one in whom I dwell. He is the one I need. It becomes very personal. 
He gives the third and fourth words for protection and third and fourth title for God here. He says, I will say to the Lord, your version should have that in all caps, which means it's translated Yahweh, unless you have the new legacy standard Bible, in which case it's already Yahweh there. But it's Yahweh, which is the covenant name for God. It's the covenant keeping name for God. The nation of Israel, when they would see that name that would invoke in their mind the covenants that God made with Abraham and with Moses. This is God's covenant-keeping name, His promise-keeping name. There was such respect for the name Yahweh that even when copyists would get there, before they would write it down, they would go and they'd clean themselves. They'd wash themselves. And some some um, history says they would actually grab a new pen and they would write the letters Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, the four letters that make up Yahweh. In fact, it was such a revered name that in public reading of the the name Yahweh, the reader would not pronounce the name for fear that they might mispronounce the name. So they would substitute it for Adonai, which is just means Lord. And they didn't want to mispronounce Yahweh. So interesting what happened, and they have the four letters for Yahweh, and then to make... Uh, understanding for the reader, they would put in the vowels for Adonai in with the letters, the consonants for Yahweh as a sign of in the original text, it was Yahweh. But when you read it, you read Adonai. And when you combine those two, you come up with the word Yehovah, which is where we get Jehovah. So that's it's a combination of the tetragrammaton, the four consonants of Yahweh and the vowels of Adonai. This is the name that means I am. It's the title that God gave to Moses when Moses, when he told Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Moses said, who do I say sent me? He says, you tell them Yahweh sent you. You say I am has sent you. It's a title that Jesus would use at least seven times in the New Testament to refer to himself. Yahweh is the refuge and the fortress Both terms refer to security that God provides for those who dwell. A refuge is a place of protection. It's a security from one's enemies. It's just emphasizing it. The psalmist is throwing term on top of term to emphasize this security. Once the Israelites conquered the promised land, they were to establish six cities of refuge throughout the promised land. And these were places where somebody accidentally committed manslaughter, they, it was a total accident, somebody was killed, they would flee to one of these six cities of refuge, and it was a, a place where no one could come in and have vengeance on them. And as long as they stayed in that city, they couldn't be killed. Or as long as the high priest was still alive, they couldn't be killed. So, the refuge for the, for the original reader, what they would see this as, this, that Jesus, or that God rather, Yahweh here, is the city of refuge. When I go and live with Yahweh, nothing can happen to me. Not, it's not talking about physically, but spiritually here, I can't be harmed. One, I'll never leave that city, and two, God will never die. So it's a total place of security that, that the enemy can't get to me. Psalm 37 verses 
39 and 40 says, The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. Psalm 34, verse 22, The Lord redeems the soul of His servants, and none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. The second, or the fourth word for security is fortress. And it means a fortified stronghold. You might think in, in America, places like Fort Knox or NORAD or some other highly guarded, secure location. In the time of, of the Old Testament, time of the New Testament, if you're thinking about a secure, fortified location, you would think of Masada. This fortress built up on top of the mountain that's on the west side of the west shore of the sea, of the Dead Sea. And it was a place of refuge that people would hide out and it was king's palaces. In fact, the Hebrew word for port, for fortress is Masuda. That's very close to Masada. So you would think that same type of thing. In terms of protection of shelter, shadow, refuge, and fortress, all these speak of close proximity with God and that complete security that accompanies that. The last stanza, verse 2, says, My God in whom I trust. And the Hebrew word for God there is Elohim. This is the very first designation in the Bible for God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. The psalmist is saying that the Most High God, the all-powerful God, the covenant-keeping God, the God who created everything is, is my God. In an era where people were worshiping any number of gods, the psalmist is saying the most powerful God is my God. The God who's created everything is my God. The God, God who keeps all his promises is my God. He alone is able to keep me. He alone is able to protect me. He alone can provide security for me. He alone keeps his promises to me. He is faithful. He is all powerful. He's able to do everything. He alone is God. He's the only one I'll put my trust in. He's the only one worthy of my praise. Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. The theme of protection and refuge is not unique to this psalm. It actually occurs throughout the book. And many of the psalms speak of the protection for those who trust in Him. Now, we need to be careful that we don't conclude that if we just trust in God, that nothing bad will ever happen to us in this world. That's not the promise here. Some committed Christians die of diseases. Some committed Christians die in battle. Some committed Christians die in accidents or been murdered. Our problem is one of of understanding this is perspective. There are three divine perspectives on the difficulties in our lives that we need to remember. One, God does protect us from difficult times. We're probably completely unaware of all that God has done to protect us. Because we don't tend to really focus on the protecting hand of God as much as we focus on the things when we think He should have protected us and He didn't. Do you really think that the ever-present 
all-loving hand of God that you and I would stand a chance against the wickedness of this world if God wasn't on our side. If Satan was free to do whatever he wanted to us, you can bet he would have destroyed us long ago. John Calvin said, when we look back on our life from the perspective of eternity, we're going to see that the power of Satan was so great that the weakness of the flesh was so feeble, that the hostility of the world was so strong, that every day of our lives, if God had not intervened, we would never have made it through a day. So we need to make sure that our perspective is right, that God is protecting on a regular basis. Secondly, on perspective, God protects us during difficult times. Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. For he is with us. His rod and his staff protect us. Third, God refines us during difficulties. Or God uses difficulties to refine us, however you want to word it. James 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. First Thessalonians 5.18, And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 12.11, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet for those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. It's not a matter of trying to look on the bright side or finding the silver lining. It's about recognizing that the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God is intent on conforming His children to the image of Christ, and He uses all kinds of means to do that. Even if that means our suffering, even if that means that we watch somebody else suffer, even if that means the death of a believer, God is using these things to conform us to the image of Christ. But the protection of God is still true. It doesn't mean nothing bad from a human perspective can happen to us. It means that I don't have to fear anything because God is with me and I'm with Him. And I'm dwelling secure in Him and nothing can take me from that. Nothing can rob me from that security. Nothing can rob my joy unless I remove myself from the secure position of God. When we put our faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we know that we are forever secure. We are in the hand of Christ and no one can take us out of His hand and, and His hand is in the Father's hand and no one can take us out of the Father's hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. The ultimate security is knowing that your eternal soul is secure. And no one can take it. Listen, if you could lose it, you would. Ask yourself this. How many times have you lost your keys? Listen, if you could lose your salvation, you would. If it were possible that we would do something to lose our salvation, we would. If you're honest enough with yourself, you know that's true. If Satan can take it from us, he would. There's no question about that. The sworn enemy of God and the sworn enemy of your soul, if he could take your salvation from you, he would. If there was some temptation that 
if you succumb to it, you lose your salvation, you can guarantee that would be a constant temptation from Satan. But we are secure in Christ. And when we dwell with God, we need no fear. We have no fear of anything. It doesn't matter what happens in this world as far as that's concerned. We don't live in fear. We've not been given the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Which means, folks, no matter what happens, no matter what happens politically, no matter, no matter what happens militarily, no matter what happens financially, no matter what happens in this world, if you have a right relationship with God, you don't need to fear anything. doesn't mean we have all the answers or we know what's going to happen, but we don't have to be afraid because we can dwell securely with God. You and I can know security. But you have to know Christ. If you're living in fear in this world, it's either because you don't have a right relationship with Christ or you don't know Him at all. And we would love to help you with that today. So please come talk to me or someone else that can share with you the gospel so you can know Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy to us that not only saves our soul but provides security for us. Father, we can live in an uncertain world with certainty that we belong to You and we are safe in Your arms. Father, thank You that Your love for us doesn't end with just our salvation, but Father, it extends to our daily lives. Lord, we live in a world that if, it's, if we're not careful, we can focus on the things of this world and become very afraid. But Father, thank You that we don't need to be afraid. But we can have confidence by living in Your presence. By dwelling close to You. Father, I pray first for those who are here who don't know You at all and, and by all rights should live in fear. Should be afraid of what will happen to them when they die. Afraid of what might happen in this world. Father, I pray for their salvation. And second, Father, for those who know You but have wandered away from Your secure hand. We're not dwelling in Your presence. We're only visitors when times are tough. Father, I pray for them to seek out Your presence. To seek to dwell in Your shadow. That, Father, they would know the, the security that is found in Your presence. And Lord, You would be glorified. Father, we pray that You would continue to conform us to the image of Christ. We pray that as we partake of communion this morning, it will be a time of rich fellowship, of praise, of thanksgiving, of repentance. And Father, You would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to add